This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again, Sam Chandon. Welcome back to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Sam Chandon. The erosion of rental housing affordability in the United States has been a recurring topic of discussion on the Real Estate Hour. While measures of rent growth at the top of the urban core market have slowed by many measures, uh, many American families face continuing challenges from slow real income gains and rising real rents. No surprise that the question of rent control is a hot topic right now. In California last month, the proposed repeal of the Costa-Hawkins Rental Housing Act gathered enough signatures that it will be put to a ballot in November. If passed, that would strip away some of the limits on cities' rent control policies. But does rent control actually benefit income-constrained families? To discuss that and the question of housing affordability in general, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Richard Green, director of the USC Lusk Center for Real Estate. Dr. Green holds the Lusk Chair in Real Estate and is professor in both the USC Saul Price School of Public Policy and the Marshall School of Business. Among his many accolades, he recently served as president of the American Real Estate and Urban Economics Association. His research addresses housing markets, housing policy, mortgage finance, and urban growth, all very much on point for our program. Richard, thanks for joining me on the Real Estate Hour. Sam, it's a pleasure to be with you. When we look at the multifamily landscape broadly, uh, where we are right now, what's happened over the course of this cycle, how would you describe where we are in terms of rental housing affordability in the United States? And I I realize that's a broad question because there are going to be significant differences across different segments of the population. Yes, so there are differences, but one thing that's true across almost all American cities is that rental affordability has gotten worse. So if you look at American Community Survey data going back to 2000, and you look at the 240 MSAs, and about 220 of them, uh, rents have risen more rapidly than incomes are. So this is not just a coastal problem. This is a widespread problem. Now, the difference between the middle of the country and the coast is on the coast, a lot of it is being driven by the fact that rents have, in fact, gone up quite a lot. Um, whereas in the middle of the country, it's driven by the fact that renter incomes have actually, it's not just that they've slowed, as real incomes are actually lower than they were 16 or 17 years ago. But for whatever reason, it's led to people spending more of their paychecks on rental income, uh, on rental costs in nearly every metropolitan area in the United States. Now, when we look across different segments of the population, is it the case that that real income decline, um, in some cases, you know, that where that's really driving some of that constraint and affordability, um, is that are there segments of the population that we can identify? Is this the young millennial? Is it the uh, the new family that you know maybe one day will aspire to home ownership? Uh, is it? Uh, targeted or is it focused on you know, certain segments of, of the metropolitan area? It, it really is about skills level. So people with college degrees have done just fine. Um, but as you go down the skill distribution, you look at people who attended some college but didn't finish, they're more housing constrained relative to where they used to be than college graduates are. You go down to people who just attended high school, it's even worse. And for those who didn't finish high school, 
it's even worse still. And so yeah, you can look at regional differences, but fundamentally it's about how much education do you have? And if you have a lot, you're actually better off than you were even after housing uh, 15, 16 years ago. But if you don't have much, you're substantially worse off. And this is true of regardless of where you are in the country. So if you're in the middle of the country, the problem is, again, that your income has fallen. If you're in our coastal cities and you're low skill, actually your income hasn't fallen very much. It may even have gone up a little bit, but your rent has gone up by a lot more. Now, a question for you, and this may be sort of you know, the you know, the question of our age, uh, but we've always had uh, differences in skills level and education levels. What's happened over the course of this cycle, uh, in particular, that uh, you know the outcomes that we see for people's ability to to pay that rent, to experiencing uh, to experience meaningful income growth, that you know, the level of skill you have matters so much more now than it did historically. Yeah, I think it's a couple of things, and, and this is something we could spend the whole time talking about. But first of all, it's just technology. Is many low-skilled people have seen their jobs replaced by technology. So, for example, in the U.S., we now actually make more cars than we did 25 years ago. They're they're not made by Ford, GM, and Chrysler in the numbers they were, but they're made by Honda and Toyota and Mercedes and BMW. Uh, but we need about half as many workers and automobiles and automobile parts manufacturing to make those same number of cars that we did 25 years ago. And you, you can look at a whole lot of different manufacturing um, sectors where this is true. And so those people who used to be able to come out of high school and get a good job working at the local plant find that that job doesn't exist anymore. The second thing is if you think about high-skilled people, they are competing in a – the, the competition for their talents is global. They can go anywhere, um, and as a result, that tends to bid up their wages. Uh, sort of the number one example of this right now is think about someone like LeBron James, who is as skilled at what he does as anybody maybe has ever been. I Apparently. I'd argue that. Uh, so he had everybody competing for him, and he was a rare commodity, and uh, so he could basically get his price. Well, if you think about it, not quite to that extreme level, but very high-skilled people in, say, the technology sector. They have lots of companies that are hungry for them and bidding up their wages. On the other hand, if you look at someone who has not finished high school, they're competing with people in Bangladesh and Vietnam and India and so on. And so they don't – they're undifferentiated from those other laborers. And, of course, that the labor costs in these other places are much lower than they are in the U.S., and so their wages are being dragged down as a result of that. So when we look at the supply side of this story, I mean, that, that's, you know, we've got this labor uh, you know, market dynamic where you know, skills matter. You know, I think overall in the multifamily space for rental apartment buildings, we've seen you know, a, a significant supply come online over the course of this cycle. I think in my discussions with you know, my institutional colleagues, uh, you know, the, the, the favored multifamily property is going to be in the urban core. It's going to you know, have a rich set of amenities, and it's going to cater to a millennial that uh, is aging, even if uh, sort of, you know, our designs and ideas about you know, how they want to live have not evolved uh, in, uh, along the same lines. Uh, what's happened on the supply side that's allowed for these increases to persist? Well, so first of all, I think it's important to note that while multifamily constructed has rebounded, it's still only at sort of its average levels 
from the last 50 or 60 years. So things look strong compared to where they were five years ago, and they certainly are. But it's not like we're building lots and lots of multifamily units by historical standards. The second thing is the nature of what is permitted to be built um, has tended to be problematic from an affordability standpoint. So, again, when you build um, here in Southern California, for example, you're having to amortize a lot of costs. Land is very expensive here. Um, permitting is very expensive here. There are fees associated with building here, in part because of our weird property tax system here. And when all is said and done, by the time you have built a multifamily unit here in Los Angeles, uh, you need rent at about $3,000 a month to make it sensible in order to build it. So a $2,000 a month rent, which is hardly cheap rent, is not sufficient to justify the new construction. And so what you're getting is stuff coming online that really is uh, only affordable the people who are making a good living, I mean, 3000 a month, in order to afford that and spend no more than 30% of your income, you're talking about an income of $120,000 a year or more. So I think the fact that we have put, and particularly in our coastal cities, lots of impediments and added a lot of costs to the development of multifamily housing explains why they have very high rent. By contrast, if you look at Texas cities, they actually do pretty well. Uh, land is pretty cheap. Uh, they don't have the fees associated with building the unit of multifamily housing. And so there you can build something that pencils out at more like $1,200, $1,300 a month. And that's close enough to the needs of the middle of the market that you can have the people move out of existing stuff into that newer stuff and leave the existing stuff vacated at lower rents for lower income people. And that's why you see affordability is much better in those places, even though there have robust economies than you see in coastal cities. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Dr. Richard Green, director of the USC Lusk Center for Real Estate. So when we're looking at a, a market like Texas, you know, uh, some of the things you've mentioned, when we've had colleagues on from you know, Zillow to the National Association of Home Builders, they've described some of the constraints uh, that have limited the amount of single-family uh, home growth, and in particular, first-time uh, you know, homebuyer-style homes. Um, you know, and, and they've talked about you know, labor, the availability of land, uh, you know, local regulation um, as all being impediments to you know, the growth in that first-time homebuyer supply. It sounds like you know, some of the same dynamics are at work over here. For, for practical purposes on the ground, I'm curious as to what happens to you know, that, that family. Uh, if you're in a market where nothing's coming online uh, that uh, is going to be priced at less than $3,000 a month, and we can talk about folks allocating more of their already constrained budget, you know, to rental costs. But at, at some point, you you literally just cannot afford to pay that rent. What happens to these families? Well, that's right. I think that's why we're seeing this phenomenon of uh, adult children staying with their parents longer. And there's been some move out since the global financial crisis, but we still have very large numbers of adult children living with their parents. And, uh, that's because they really there's no other place that they could go, and it, it, it's actually striking to me when I teach uh, in our executive programs here at USC how I have students who are in their mid 20s, late 20s, who are living with their parents, 
and they see it as a way, and the parents agree, that they can actually save money for a down payment and maybe buy a house someday, although in L.A. that's very difficult. But I, I think this is having profound dynamics on household formation. Yeah, that is, uh, that's incredible to see, particularly sort of in a class of executive education students. And so we yeah. have to think fairly broadly about, you know, what, what are the dynamics of, of different populations? Uh, this is not something that's limited to folks who maybe we would think of as traditionally income constrained. These are folks who are in, in an executive education program at one of the finest institutions in the world. So when we look across different metropolitan areas um, and uh, you know, many of the different cities in California and elsewhere, what kinds of policies uh, are cities uh, bringing to the table, traditional, innovative, uh, that uh, you know, maybe will help us uh, to address some of the affordability challenge? Well, I'll tell you what they're not doing here in California, and that's basically changing zoning and changing um, environmental and labor standards in a way that you could make a dent when I say environmental standards, I don't mean that we should be compromising the environment. I mean, we have rules that really don't help the environment very much and yet constrain the ability to build. So I, I, uh, I don't see any place that's doing anything all that useful. The exception is Seattle, which has actually done a lot of rezoning and has seen a lot of new construction. I mean, as I'm sure you know, Seattle has now set a record for its population, which is kind of unusual for a constrained older city like Seattle is, is, is usually what happens in cities get older. If their borders are constrained and people age out, household sizes fall. And so even if they're healthy cities, you don't see population growth. Seattle's had a lot of new construction. People have moved in. There are now more than 700,000 people in Seattle, which had barely half a million 20, 25 years ago. Uh, so Seattle has shown... Uh, some willingness to allow for new construction, and that's the most important thing. Still, they face issues with labor costs and materials costs. And by the way, if we have a real trade war, watch out for what's going to happen to materials costs. Right. I think. But the thing I think you're getting at is, um, is something that's being trotted out is revisiting rent control. And here in California, there is an issue on the ballot, as you talked about at the top of the program. Uh, to repeal a law that limits the ability of municipalities to impose rent control on landlords. So when we look at sort of, you know, that being sort of the possibility of a ballot initiative that would you know, come into reality after, after November, um, you know, walk us through the basic economics of rent control. Before we do that, when you're making that comparison of you know, some of the things that you know, maybe we could do and aren't doing in California, you gave zoning as the example. Um, when we were to, if we were to contrast, let's say, California and Texas, uh, where Texas is getting sort of you – know, somewhat better outcomes for us. Uh, is, is zoning you know, one of the really key differences between these two areas? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And so I'm sure your listeners know Houston actually has no zoning at all. And as a Californian, I don't particularly want to see Los Angeles start to look like Houston. I think there is a role for some zoning. But if zoning is tightening up the land market very much and is preventing redevelopment, then it needs to be... Um, modified so it allows for enough housing to be built in the face of new demand and we certainly aren't there yet and, and as i said the contrast is houston you can build pretty much whatever you want you have to meet building standards but uh and house is pretty cheap there 
Yeah, your your point's very well taken about maybe not wanting to go as far as that. Uh, there is a role for zoning, uh, but yeah. it, it might be sort of uh, in terms of the outcomes we're trying to get, sort of you know excessive or restrictive in in other parts of the country. You also mentioned uh, sort of you know, the the impact of a of a potential trade war. Uh, if we're not already there, uh, or at least at the at the onset of one, uh, on materials prices and that affecting supply. And when I've had folks on from the single family side, you know, we've talked about sort of the the, the perennial you know uh, softwood lumber disputes with Canada, um, the our, our sort of national security threat to the north. Uh, what are we looking at in terms of the potential impact on uh, on multifamily if conditions were to devolve in our trade relationships? Well, I mean, again, I don't know because I don't know how much of this is bluffing and how much of it is real. But you know, WTO tariffs, World Trade Organization tariffs are, I think, 30 percent. So uh, anything that we import, add about 30 percent to the price of that and the cost of that. And that goes directly into building the house. And so if you think materials costs are, I don't know, like a third of the cost of building a house and take into account land, labor, and material. And it will vary depending on where in the country you are. That's a 10%, 30% times a third is about a 10% increase in cost. And, right. you know, so, if people are at the margin right now, then 10% more means they're no longer at the margin. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Dr. Richard Green, director of the USC Lusk Center for Real Estate. So, Richard, if we can go go, go back to this point you made just a couple of minutes ago about um, you know, potential changes in the way that we think about uh, limits on rent control policies at the level of the municipality, uh, what is rent control? How does it work? So it, it's simply this, is you uh, have a municipality that regulates the prices that a landlord might charge to uh, tenants. And there are two kinds of rent control. There's hard rent control, which basically says you are limited in perpetuity to what you're allowed to have your tenants pay in rent. And so a rent control board may come to you and say you're allowed to raise your rents by the consumer price index or by, in the case of San Francisco, two-thirds of the consumer price index, something like that. Um, soft rent control allows for something called vacancy control, which basically says so long as a tenant remains in place in their uh, apartment or other rental unit, their rent increases will be limited. But as soon as they move out, you can charge the market rent to whomever the next tenant is. And because of a state law in California called Costa-Hawkins, we have what's called vacancy control or soft rent control. Now, when you mention the two-thirds of CPI increase in San Francisco, I just want to make sure I understand this. You know, as an economist, obviously, CPI is not my preferred measure of inflation. But if you're able to increase the rents at two-thirds of CPI, doesn't that imply that the real rent for the landlord is declining over time? Yes, that's right. And that's why uh, uh, there's a nice paper out by Rebecca Diamond and Tim McQuaid that documents that San Francisco has probably lost something like 15,000 rental units directly because of the way their rent control measure is implemented. 
Right. So, so t- talk to me about sort of that loss of units. I, I gather that I can certainly understand the popular appeal of rent control, right? So if, if we've got sort of you know, residents, voters living in apartments, rents are going up quickly. It's a policy where we're able to come back and say, yeah, we're going to put some caps or, or constraints on how quickly your, your housing costs will go up. And that sort of has a strong appeal, but it, it's not getting us uh, on the larger scale, the, the outcomes we're looking for. What is... Right. Uh, Go ahead. Right. It, it doesn't solve the problem. The problem we face in our expensive cities is we don't have enough housing. That's what a high price tells you, is you don't have enough of the good that the high price is being charged for. If you have enough of the good, then the, the supplier of that product can't charge a very high price for it. The, the thing about rent control is it, it, there are three bad things about it. Uh, the first is it gives people an incentive to convert rental units into owner units, so it reduces the size of the owner stock. The second thing it does is it keeps landlords from having an incentive to maintain their properties because why maintain something when you can't get any more money out of it if you maintain it? And the third thing is it's badly targeted, so there's no income test for being in a rent-controlled unit. And I've actually taken a look at this. If you look at People who live in rent, we call it rent-stabilized properties in Los Angeles that were built for the uh, most recent 10 years that are covered by rent stabilization and compare it to the most recent 10 years that were not covered by rent stabilization, the income distribution between the two groups is basically exactly the same. And so you're doing nothing to make sure that you're relieving the burden on low-income people. And in fact, we observe in data People in San Francisco living in rent-stabilized units that are making more than half a million dollars a year. Right. And I think we'll all have anecdotal examples. Certainly, I have plenty of them in New York where someone who um, has certainly outgrown, let's say, the need for uh, any kind of rent control or stabilization uh, is still in a rent-stabilized apartment. You described there not being an income test. Uh, Why not? Uh, That's a really good question, Sam. And when I ask advocates why they just think they basically give the same answer that uh, you need to have it not income targeted for the same reason that Social Security isn't, that you would lose political support for it if it were thought to be a program for low-income people. So on that question of political support, I mean, as housing economists, we know this doesn't get us the outcomes we're looking for, and yet um, rent control persists as sort of, you know, the go-to solution whenever we've got rapidly rising rents. Is that just a, a, a feature of the politics of, of uh, local government? Yeah, well, one thing I think people are not particularly good at is figuring out unintended consequences of things. And that's what economics is about to a large degree is, is you know, it's basically the science of scarcity. That's how it started developing uh, with Smith and Ricardo and Malthus 200 plus years ago. Uh, and so people tend to think of immediate impact. They don't think of what the repercussions of that impact might be. And people look at landlords and they say these are not particularly appealing figures. And they look at tenants and they seem to be very sympathetic figures. And so they think, so what if we limit the income landlords make if we help low income people? Uh, the, the problem is, ultimately, what you'll get as a result is fewer landlords, fewer producers of the thing we really need, which is housing. 
based on what you've described in, in major metropolitan areas over the uh, across the country, uh, does this get better or worse over the next couple of years? So that's a political judgment, and I'm really bad at political judgments. Um, <laughs> you know, so for example, there is a statewide ballot initiative to repeal Costa Hawkins. One of the features of that initiative is it would remove the exemption for single-family homes for rent control. And, you know, there are a lot of homeowners in California, and they disproportionately vote. And so whether they vote to support this or not is something I'm very curious to see. So I, I really don't know, Sam, whether this is going to pass or not. Um, I think if it fails, given how blue California is, that probably says there isn't a lot of support for it nationwide, but if it succeeds, then I think other places have to watch out. It might happen. Now we have just about a minute left. You described Seattle relaxing some of its zoning in a, in a way that's sensible uh, and, and get, perhaps getting better outcomes as a result. Uh, any other major metros or cities around the country that we can look to as uh, folks that are really sort of pursuing this policy in a way that ultimately is effective? Yeah, I mean, Washington, D.C. did quite a lot of rezoning uh, roughly eight to ten years ago. And you can see it is if you, if you go to southeast D.C., uh, there's a lot of stuff going up. Um, and, and it's sort of transforming the skyline of that part of D.C. And you go up New York Avenue, sort of in the northeast. And, you know, rents, again, they're still high in D.C., but they haven't been rising as rapidly. And so uh, they had a planning director there, Harriet Tregoning, who was committed to making zoning in D.C. more sensible given the demand for D.C., and I, I think it's producing salubrious results. Well, Richard, uh, that's all the time we have for today. I certainly hope that you'll join us again on the program so we can continue this discussion. I would love to, Sam. Thanks a lot. Really enjoyed it. That was Dr. Richard Green, director of the USC Lusk Center for Real Estate. Our show will be repeated throughout the week. You can read more about the Real Estate Hour and our other shows and hosts on the SiriusXM website at SiriusXM.com slash business radio. If you have a question for us, you can write to our email address, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at, business, at bizradio111 at Real Estate on SXM. And you can find me at Sam Chandon. The Real Estate Hour is produced by Patty Hall, who's also the program director here at Business Radio. Danielle Bruno has run of the house on the soundboard. I'm your host, Sam Chandon. Thanks for joining us. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 